Hello, Kanchimbonas. I am very excited to unlock a previous lit review where I talked about the book of short stories titled Zigzagger by Manuel Munoz with Yesenia, a fellow Tucsonan Latina who's actually now studying for the bar. So everybody, please send her good wishes and good luck her way. Can't imagine having to take a bar exam during COVID, so I am really thinking of all of the Latinas, Latinas, and Cachimbonas that are studying for the bar exam right now. Really, really big ups to you all. And in this lit review, Yasinya and I talked about this book of short stories that moves beyond traditional themes of Chicano literature to explore conflicts of family, memory, longing, and loss. And he focuses on the lonely rural towns of California's Central Valley, which, even though it's a hub of agricultural production, it's critical, actually, to California's economy and to the U.S. and literally feeding people. Uh, it's not often depicted, I, I think, as much as other parts of California and really appreciated that angle and perspective, and Gisingin and I also dissected the ways in which Munoz challenges stereotypical depictions of queerness, and there's kind of interesting paranormal or not aspects of the stories that we discussed, and ultimately end up critiquing the influence of Catholicism in promoting homophobia. So I hope that you all enjoy. If you really enjoyed this conversation and wish that you could have been privy to it, last year when it was published or if you just want to hear more like this then you can become a patron the patron helps me out because i pay maybelline my intern for who does marketing and operations does the graphics for the social media which helps with visibility we also um, use it to buy the books, the very expensive books that are required for the lit review, and just various other little things here and there that I'm constantly working on to try and improve the podcast for you all. Ultimately, I'd love to do this full time. I think I want you all to remember that the stuff that I put out is what I've done while always having a full time demanding job as a lawyer. And... I could do so much more if I actually had the freedom to produce all the content that I want. So just please, 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 please help me get there. I appreciate the new patrons. I got two new patrons this month. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to Christina and thank you to Natalia for becoming my newest patrons. I really like this patron setup because it allows me to be compensated for all the work that I do without me needing to go against my anti-capitalist values and hawking products that I don't really believe in. And I think the, I know for a fact that the listener experience is so much better without ads. And so, yeah, I, I really like, I also appreciate that in a way the folks who contribute on the Patreon are molding what I'm talking about and thinking about because ultimately I want you all to enjoy the content. The Lit Review Project for me is a way for myself as a Salvadorian femme, as a Central American woman, to reclaim intellectualism, to reclaim literature as something that is definitively within our realm to speak about. And, and also that you know, just providing a fun space for us to unpack these things. I think the rigidity of academia is counterproductive if we're really trying to create a space of curiosity and learning. And so that's why I do the lit review. If you want to support Adekachimona in other ways, an amazing way is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts sharing what your thoughts are. Thank you to Pinkolocha, who left the latest review. Really appreciate that. And also, of course, follow Radio Cachimbona at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're taking the conversations from the podcast onto social media. Hope you all enjoyed this lit review.
excited today to have my friend and law student Yesenia here to talk about Zigzagger, which is a series of short stories that were written by Manuel Munoz. Yesenia, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners and yeah. say anything you think might be relevant to this conversation? Um, well, hi, I'm Yesenia. I am a 3L law student graduating in May, and I cannot wait. <laughs> and I am a uh, hoping to become an immigration attorney, so these communities in Zigzag are super familiar to me. Yeah. So he writes about American families mostly in the Central Valley in California, which is a big agricultural area. There's lots of farm workers, and for that reason, there's always been a really big Latinx population there. And I think at one point he also points out that it's it's kind of an interesting place of he calls he says white and brown people from Oklahoma and then people from Mexico talking about the big migrations that occurred during the Dust Bowl, people coming from Oklahoma, and then the more recent migration of Mexican folks. The first story that we wanted to talk about was Zigzagger, which the, the whole collection of stories is named after. And one of the things that struck me about Zigzagger was how there was a very subtle queerness throughout the book. At one point, the boy who's kind of the focus of the story, he is out on a Saturday night. His friends are drinking. He's not drinking. He's just smoking a cigarette, but he likes being around mm -hmm. like his friends that are drunk. He thinks it's fun. And he says, after a certain point, he knew that the drunker boys would sit next to him and talk. He would not respond except to smile because he didn't know what else to do. What to, what to make of their joking? Their arms heavy around his shoulders. Do you think Manuel Munoz chose to insert this type of subtle queerness in this book about Mexican-American families to reflect the lo que se ve, no se pregunta phenomenon amongst Latinx families? I think... I actually didn't think it was as subtle. At first, I kind of didn't pick up on it. And I feel like most people, when they start reading it, they're like, oh, the boy's possessed. You know, when you first... That's kinda, what I thought, too. Yeah, when you first start reading it. But then it kind of reminded me of what a lot of people, when they don't understand something, it's like, es el diablo. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of mentality, which is why... I think Munoz very purposefully kind of made people think yeah. that the boy was being possessed and that all this stuff happened. But you kind of don't start to see it because I totally, that line you just read, I totally didn't pick up on the queerness of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't start picking up on it until he ignores the girl. There's the part where oh. the girl comes over and she's trying to flirt with him. And he's like, oh, yeah, like totally uninterested, except he's interested in the man. Yeah. That's when I started getting kind of like the, oh, wait, hold up. <laughs> What's going on? Mm -hmm. I think the girl went up to him and was like, the man was mean to me. Like, I want you yeah. to stand up for me. And uh, he was just not interested. And yeah. Was like, this is not my battle he was to just fight. <laughs> he was just more fascinated, I think, mm -hmm. with the guy. Mm -hmm. And then he gives you that little hint. And then it's like, boom, that scene, that scene where you're kind of confused. Like, is the man the devil? Or are they having sex? Like, yeah. what? What's happening yeah i actually thought it was really interesting that he put that religious imagery there because like when you hear about convulsions you do think if, if you were raised catholic yeah. <laughs> a lot of latinx people are you do think about the devil and you think about yeah. like a demon possessing your human body but what i think is really subversive about the text is that after these convulsions the boy says that he no longer hates himself that he has come to accept himself yeah, he was saying that it was it was finding himself. And then he says, you know, he does not feel ashamed of himself as he once did. And mm -hmm. he, he was there was a part where he was saying that he wondered, like, when he talked, if his voice would be different. Yeah. And then in that next page is his mom stopping him from talking and like, no, 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 like, don't. Because if you speak, it'll be it's kind of like if you speak, it'll be real mm -hmm. kind of thing. And trying to stop his dad from realizing what's happening, too. I didn't understand why she looked in his mouth at the end of the story. I didn't understand that either, but he did say in it that he sounded like another person. He sounded like the man. Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of, I think it was just one of those things that wasn't like a literal thing. It was just more, who is this person that's coming out in your voice? Like, who is this new 
boy, you're not like my yeah, like my boy, who are you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I also wonder if that represents him coming into his manhood mm-hmm. as a queer man. Like voice, your voice changing is seen as like an adolescent milestone, and for him, and I guess it's it's also it's symbolic that he has now found his voice. Mm-hmm. So the the story goes from the boy being sick in his bed to flashbacks of the the night before when it's Saturday night and they're out and about, the teenagers are out and about on the town. And then later he, it goes back to him in the bed the morning after and he's recovering from the convulsions that he was having before. And he gets up from his bed and he's standing in his underwear Quote, as if he has escaped his body once and for all, and yet exhausted as he feels, knows that his body is his once again. What, who do you think overtook his body? Or like, how do you understand that description? Like, what is he talking about there? It kind of made me think of, I mean, I was, I'm pretty, I guess it was kind of rare in my upbringing that sex wasn't seen as like a really bad thing. But I feel like in a lot of families, sex is kind of seen like, dirty and or like you will be tainted if you yes have sex, you are so. tainted you are marks like it reminds you like jane the virgin you know when the yeah. grandma like crumples up <laughs> the, the flower, flower. <laughs> like you can never get it back yeah it's kind of a feeling of you know even even though you you kind of want it you, you it's a little scary mm-hmm. right so even yeah if, even if you would have known like this is actually who i am i'm queer it's still a little scary for him because of all of these years of priests and religion and parents and all this stuff saying it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a, I want, it's kind of like I want somebody else to blame for me feeling this, feeling good about this or like feeling pleasure from this kind of thing. Like, and also the parents talk about them wanting to find someone to blame. Yeah. For what yeah, happened to Yeah, they wanted to, to blame son. the friends for yeah. making him drunk. Yeah. Or it wasn't his yeah. fault. <laughs> Yeah, I think I understood, like, him escaping his body as a metaphor for his experience having sex because in the scene where he may or may not be having sex, (laughs) he talks about how he kept looking up at the stars and the branches and that the man's grunting made him grow Mm -hmm. and made him, like, ascend into the trees, which I think, I guess that could be, like, a metaphor for orgasm. I think that scene just made me, I think, very uncomfortable just because of the word choice. It's very, like, grunting. You know, it's very different than, like, moaning. Yeah. And I think it was but it very on purpose. It's like, it's like a cowboy man. It was, but it was, like, very <laughs> animalistic. Like, oh, you look down yeah. at the hooves and you're like, oh, hooves, devil. Yeah. And also just the fact that it said man and boy. Mm. I think that just kind of was like, uh, I don't know. But I think it was very much on purpose to kind of bring out the un- the discomfort within ourselves because even if you are very open to many things you know I still we still have like these deep-seated like discomforts I think that yeah. I think this just brings out in you yeah well I think we do need to talk about like predatory adults mm-hmm. and teenagers like especially in high school because that is a huge issue, I think, within the Latinx community and also amongst queer men. Yeah, I've... and it's a theme in the book. Oh, really? Yeah, they were, um, in some of the other books, they were talking about, in some of the other stories, sorry, the uncle oh. that no one wants to talk about. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that one was like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, yeah, because a lot of my queer friends have told me that a lot of, that their first sexual experiences mm-hmm. were when they were, like, like teens you know like 17 16 17 but like with an older man mm-hmm. and like i think there's disagreement about how okay that is because like some some people are like oh it was just like he like introduced me to gay sex mm-hmm. it was like guiding me but obviously you have to take into account yeah the age difference and the power difference the power too. dynamics of it all yeah yeah about this but to bring it out explicitly after the convulsions he doesn't feel ashamed of himself anymore why do you think that that is 
I mean, I just think it's it's a hard change. It's a hard change discovering anything about yourself that you didn't know before. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what the convulsions are meant to represent, just like that really tough transition. And then after, like, it seems really tumultuous when you're in it. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, it's kind of when you kind of were like, okay, like that happened. I went through it, and it's, like, when you're going through it, they're like, you don't know what to do. Your parents don't know what to do. I mean, there's that scene of the mom just pouring everything in a bowl, trying to yeah. make a medicine to fix her son. Mm-hmm. It's like nobody understands what's happening, like, not even you. But then when it's done, you're like, okay, like, it's me now. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I went through the change I was supposed to go through. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that makes sense about the convulsions of them being kind of a metaphor for like that internal struggle mm-hmm. especially because it makes sense to me that they would be convulsions again if he was raised in a really religious household and like you internalize this idea that you are the devil yeah and that, like what you just did will make you a devil evil yeah like dirty what do you think of the mom and dad reactions that's what something i, I found interesting yeah like the mom literally being afraid i thought it made sense that they wanted to blame the boy's friends mm-hmm. for the issue that was happening because I think that's just a very common parental response that like you never want to think that your kid is the perpetrator. Yeah. You always want to think that your kid's being influenced by some other bad kid. Or drugs or alcohol. Yeah. Or- yeah. But then, and also like the mom, the mom's reaction made sense to me too because I think again, it is really perfectly representing like lo que se ve no se pregunta mm-hmm. because she, there were certain phrases where that implied that she kind of knew what was happening, but was trying to ignore it. Yeah. So that made a lot of sense to me. And then the dad being angry, I think I was also related to that. Yeah. <laughs> like that, this kind of like hyper masculine man who doesn't know how to process his emotions in any way. I think one line was literally like, he could hear his father being angry. That's the only mood that he was in yeah. ever. Something like that. What did you think? Well, I was thinking, it, it very much reminded me of the mom trying to stop the dad from finding out something that was kind of obvious, and it just kind of made me think of all of the times that I did something, and my mom was like, damn, how am I going to tell your dad? <laughs> so that was kind of like, I feel like a lot of the times your mom is kind of like... The intuitive one. Yeah. Who knows what's going on. Yes, who knows, like, can kind of see, like, the changes you're going through, and then the, the dad's kind of the last one to find out yeah. a lot of the well, time. Like if you're, like, emotionally detached, it's yeah. going to take you a while to figure stuff out, you yeah. know what I mean? Cause especially, like... This is all really subtle. Yeah. You know, it's like, it seems like the boy himself didn't even know about his attraction to men. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that the man that's just angry all the time, that's like literally the only emotion he knows how to be, is lost and yeah. is like not getting it. Makes sense. <laughs> why you think that Manuel Munoz didn't name any of the characters in the story. He calls them boy, girl, man with belt buckle, etc. I think it was so that more than like one person could relate to it. I think he kind of left it like as an open canvas because I mean even though I don't identify as queer, I kind of inserted myself into the theme of change and kind of thought about how hard it was for my parents when I said, hey, like, I want to move out of state to go to college. And they're like, what? Like, why? (laughs) And so that was, like, a process, too. And I think it's kind of left and it's, like, really open so that you can insert yourself into this depiction of events of, like, parents not understanding and thinking it's bad and stopping you from doing it and trying to fix you and trying to do all these things. Yeah, I agree. I feel like he's telling the story of of the Central Valley, and so it's more fitting to say boy or girl or man with belt buckle because this isn't a story that just happened to one person named Victor. Like, this Mm -hmm. is a pattern across the Central Valley and, like, across Latinx generations, so... I agree that it's it was a way to to suggest how this story isn't just about this individual family. Mm-hmm. Like this is a story that's happened multiple times. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
how did you understand the paranormal aspects of the story? I was kind of, I, I was confused about what exactly it was all meant to mean, especially with the religious imagery. Mm-hmm. He, oh, the mom describes the welts on his legs and him speaking in a voice that was not his. And that while he was having his convulsions, the house seemed to swell and breathe as if it were living itself. I mean, is this just really interesting <laughs> imagery and metaphor, or is like were there paranormal aspects yeah. to the story? I think again, I just think Manuel Muñoz really understands the people he writes about and the people he writes to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not Catholic. My parents haven't been Catholic in a long time. And even then, <laughs> same. <laughs> I read it and I was like, oh my God. Like after like the first sentence, it was like, this boy is possessed. Right. <laughs> he needs a name. Someone get him a priest. Someone exercise this boy because he's possessed. Mm-hmm. And then it just, I think it just kind of meant to understand, to, to make the reader understand how different like this was for the parents mm-hmm. you know this isn't like a normal everyday occurrence it wasn't he came he didn't use the metaphor of he came home drunk right he used the metaphor he came home possessed mm-hmm. by the dead they just that was their level of misunderstanding like i don't know what's yeah. happening to my boy this isn't natural so he I, I think that was his way of bringing in the parents perspective into the thing of just like this fear and like i lost his soul and I can't have a priest and all this all this panic, I guess, that comes with it. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think when the boy is describing his experience having sex with the man, there is also this imagery that could maybe signal some other kind of otherworldly stuff. What I see, this, this is one of the things I was confused about, is that the man with the belt buckle, at one point, they're having sex, and then the book said that horse hooves were on yeah. the ground. And the man was had like elevated him to the top of the trees, but yeah. then it said that like there was another man whose skin was dull and red. Yeah, it was like at the top. I think it, I thought that was his skin. It was just like this mixture of really pretty things. Like he talks about the stars yeah, and the tree yeah. canopies, and it's like so relaxing. And then he talks about hooves, like knotted backs, and yeah. rough hands. And this feels really good, but I've been told this is terrible. Right? You know, this is a sin. Right. of traditionally masculine heteronormative imagery with queerness. The specific example that I thought of right away was the boy described, when they're having sex, the boy describing the man's back as really tough mm-hmm. and a back that reminds him of when the boy would work in the fields picking fruit. And the male migrant worker isn't thought of as queer. So I just wanted to ask what you thought about that. I just thought it was kind of meant to challenge this kind of like heteronormative view that we have of queer men mm-hmm. of very feminine mm-hmm. and he they actually describe like this very stereotype in, in one of the stories of very well dressed very clean very neat hands very soft hands and this from the moment they started describing the, the man with the belt buckles like a very manly mm-hmm. presence very he's like a vaquero traditionally <laughs> masculine yeah. which I think was meant to just show that you know, it isn't always the overly feminized character that's the queer character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it gives visibility to that population mm-hmm. because there are queer vaqueros, yeah. there are like queer migrant workers, of course there are. It's not like queerness isn't based on class. Yeah. And there's this class of people forced to do this kind of work. Obviously, some of them are going to be queer. Yeah. And so I really appreciated that because like, on the back of the book, they say that Munoz's stories move beyond traditional themes of Chicano literature. And I agree just because of the queerness that he inserts in it. I mean, you know, I think this is, for someone who identifies as being a part of Chicano literature, I think this, for me, really groundbreaking. And I know it's 2019, it's kind of basically like, oh my God, you mentioned queer people. (laughs) But that's where we are. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what that reminded me of is, I, I I can't remember where I heard this. I think it's like on a show or something where they were talking about how in the 80s, 
testosterone therapy was like a big thing in Miami. Of if you started to notice your son having some queer tendencies, oh my god, you put them in testosterone therapy. Oh and my then god. it was the joke was now that you have these super hairy, super tall, muscular queer men in South Beach. <laughs> that's kind of what it reminded me of. It's just kind right. of like that's not what you think of. And I think it's like really important also just to recognize that who you have sex with doesn't determine how you dress, yeah. how you act, what you say. Because I think that's also something that, like, amongst traditional conservative Catholic Latinx people, like, that's, like, goes over their head. Like, that's not even... Yes, like, the question of quién es el hombre y quién es, quién es la mujer. Right. Oh, God. Yeah, like, that is yeah. just so... The heteronormative is just so ingrained yeah. that, you know, there has to be the feminine energy and there has to be the, the masculine energy, yeah. even if they're both men, even if they're both women, even if they're non-gender conforming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then, also, I guess, to be fair to the Latinx community, these aren't assumptions that are solely happening yeah. in the Latinx community, but I'm just speaking from my personal experience. Yeah. So I also really appreciated when, towards the end of the story, Munoz signaled that queerness has always been normal sexuality amongst humans. He, the mom describes, says of the zigzagging dancers on Saturday nights that they invite <laughs> ancient trouble. <laughs> what do you think the mom suspected of the boy? What was this ancient trouble that she was talking about? <laughs> I mean, I definitely think she suspect, suspected that he was queer. Yeah. You know, when she talks about, like, the zigzagging of the hips mm-hmm. and, like, all this stuff. And, yeah, no, I think it very much signals... Because when you hear ancient, like, you don't hear... Uh, you don't think of, like, medieval Europe, right? Mm-hmm. You think of, like, indigenous communities, I think, a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think people reading him would think of that. Yeah. And I think it kind of, yeah, just, like, what to say, like, showed you that this fear of masculine not masculine queerness and anything that's not heteronormative kind of came with a lot of with the people that brought catholicism yeah europe and with all the influx of colonization and all that and i think that's kind of what it it hints at of like before this this wasn't this evil terrible thing Mm -hmm. but now it is yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought about that but I think that that is actually really important to bring out because we're talking about these ideas rooted in Catholicism and it was the Spaniards that brought Catholicism yeah. to Latin America. Transitioning to the other story that we decided to talk about, the Wurong. Is this, we were talking before about how this was the hardest one that we read. It was difficult to understand. And it's actually only two pages. <laughs> it was still the hardest. But the synopsis is that there's a man who sells shark teeth. And he's been going around California towns selling his shark teeth and now they've he's finally made it to the central valley from the coast and i guess word travels fast and they the town had was so small that they were like expecting Mm -hmm. this man who was selling shark teeth he sells them all shark teeth and tells them no es juguete he traces an x on their right cheek to show that the teeth are actually sharp and they can make a mark on your skin. And he says, we don't believe Chela anymore, but we do listen to Bansha. And she says she knows why the man comes. Because he is like the spiders that we step on, the daddy long legs that crawl down from the corners of our houses, that you must throw them out after you hear them pop. If not, the little babies come in the middle of the night to slip up your nose and your mouth and ears to lay more eggs and turn your body into a web. So I was going to ask, what do you think the man who sells shark teeth represents? Now that... Because I, I like read it like three times and I was like, man, I have no idea. But now that you kind of mention it, now that I hear it out loud, I just kept thinking of colonization. Hmm. Uh, especially with the, the daddy long legs, if you don't, you know, throw them out after they pop, like their babies come in or whatever. And it's kind of, it kind of just made me think of the colonizers coming in. And first, it's like, you know, you, you have all of these stories of 
the native people were so fascinated like who are these people you know like that story of the aztecs that they thought that that they were gods that they were gods i think that's disputed (laughs) and i was gonna say a lot of this is probably like very whitewashed yeah but it's it's just kind of like this thing that you don't really know like is it good is it bad like it's new what's coming and then just kind of like the older people saying it's not you know even the man saying that this ain't a toy you know this can really hurt you this can really if you don't throw it out like the daddy long legs is gonna come and like take over you and the daddy long legs would be the colonizers i think the colonizing culture of because they were saying like you can kill the the daddy long legs like you can physically kill like a colonizer but like the culture ideology yeah the ideology takes takes through and it's there that's interesting because the first thing I thought about was related but slightly different. I thought about capitalism and how, because I guess you know I think it's pretty fair to say that in general the Central Valley is not as wealthy as mm-hmm. like the metropolitan areas of San Francisco and California or Sacramento, I guess. And I thought it was really interesting that like this town that is probably poor and very small like so small that mm-hmm. a man who's selling shark teeth is like the big news of the yeah. of the town is judging this other man who's just trying to make his living and he's like the spiders that we step on i think to me see normally i would read that as being about this stereotype of latinx people like breeding like rabbits and like creating mm-hmm. all of these like babies but this, but the people in the story are Latinx themselves. So, well, I guess they could still be perpetuating that. Yeah, or it could idea. be like the kind of like the whole thing. Of, yeah, we are not at the top of the food chain, but we're also not at the bottom. Yeah, I think that's. that's I think that's what it is. It's maybe they're poor, but they have their own home mm-hmm. and they have they have like a stable place. Whereas this man makes his money and is living just by traveling from town to town selling shark teeth, and I'm sure that that's not that lucrative of a thing. <laughs> so when I the paragraph that I read aloud, I think to me was them shaming him because he's poor. And mm-hmm. I guess, and I guess it's, and I think that that idea of breeding a lot is also something that's associated with poor people. Yeah, too. Although it's interesting that it's a man. It's you know? weird. I think he, it, he doesn't. He can't produce. It kind of sounds like kind of like the whole thing of famous people of color. Sofia Vergara comes to mind for like Latinx people. Of she, her products, her shows are consumed worldwide, and you know, consumed by. American audiences. I think she's one of like the highest paid paid actresses in TV or something like that. She's the highest paid Latina actress, but she's Quote still <laughs> super mocked. Yeah, because of her Latinidad, because of her accent, because of her body, because of the way she acts. She's very mocked. So it's kind of like in this book, everybody's waiting for this guy, and like he's the talk of the town. It's like super interesting, but like even though he's really interesting, he's still below you. Like I still yeah. don't want him. So it's kind of like that the the entertainer of color you're, yeah. you're here to entertain me but like you can't join my society yeah kind of thing mm-hmm. In the story, the narrator also says, this is a town to wonder in about that man and why he's bringing shark teeth all the way out here, away from the ocean. And Munoz has been celebrated for showing parts of California that actually haven't normally been shown. He's talking about Central Valley farmland. He's talking about Mexican-American immigrants. Mm -hmm. And he's not talking about the coast. He's not talking about Silicon Valley. He's not talking about San Francisco or LA. He's talking about the Central Valley. Where did you see this representation in the story? I, I mean, I think it's it's the imagery of bringing something that's so of the coast. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like the shark tooth mm-hmm. to, and, and it's such a huge, so it's so new. It's like such a new shiny thing. A shark yeah. tooth from the water. Mm-hmm. Where like communities like in San Diego, you probably be like, oh, cool, a shark tooth, and yeah. then just there's kinda, multiple people. So yeah. Shark teeth. <laughs> so this is just like very just imagery from the ocean coming into the inland. I think it's just a very obvious transition yeah so 
I also want to talk about Museo de las Museo de Bellas Artes, and I thought that so in this poem. He talks about, or in this poem, well, he actually, his, like, stories are very poetry-like. Yeah. Yeah. But in this story, he's talking about a new museum that's being built in this town, in the Central Valley, and it's going to be free for the first week after the ribbon snip. And because it's free, a ton of people go, and it's really hard to see everything. They're pushing and shoving, and they can't really look at the stuff in the museum. It's, he says, we came away empty, no photographs, nothing to hold. The gift shop packed with people and expensive. And on our way out, we knew that we would not step in again. Not for the $5 after this opening week. And what if beautiful things came here to be shown as the town began promising? Opulent masks from Mexico, arrowheads, and green feathers. Where would we be? Not, ab not able to see them as they sat inside the new building, so freshly blue. I, I thought that this was so good at pointing out just the ironies of being a poor person of color, especially somebody who can trace their roots back to Latin America, just, or like formerly colonized countries, mm -hmm. because in the situation, there's Mexican-Americans who are maybe from the regions in Mexico where these masks mm -hmm. are being made, and they can't afford to look at it in this museum yeah. and just how ironic it is that that would be the case I wanted to ask if you have seen similar dynamics in Tucson I would just say I mean when I read this just the word gentrification kept yelling at, yelling at me and by where I work at the at the law firm that I intern at it, it's a very it's a Latinx community lower income but then they, there was this lot of four houses that were built and each house was like four hundred thousand dollars whoa like that no what the heck and between these $400,000 houses, there are like a few of houses that are like pretty torn down or that are about to get torn down and all that stuff. And then there's a $200,000 house. So, I mean, just gentrification, it, it's happening so much. And then I just, I also kind of, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but I kind of took it as a job on Mexico too. Like, oh, really? Because there is, in Mexico, there's Teatro de Bellas Artes, mm -hmm. so, which is like a huge theater, right? The biggest actors and actresses have had their plays in Bellas Artes. And again... Is the one in Mexico City? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I was just kind of thinking of like, and I just thought about it because Jose Jose just died, like yeah. he's a really big singer in Mexico, mm -hmm. and they were going to have vigil there for him in Teatro de Bellas Artes. And I was like, how many people can afford a ticket? To Teatro de Artes. Yeah. Very few. You know, how many in this story, how many people can afford this ticket to the Museo de Bellas Artes? They were like, the only reason they got to go is because for free. Right. You know, the first time. So it's just kind of like taking the people's art and kind of making it inaccessible to the people, you know. And it was also a lot, it made me think a lot of the, you know, the indigenous women designs mm -hmm. of like clothes that are being copyrighted by like these European designers mm -hmm. and all this like literally making their art illegal to them mm -hmm. not just like too expensive but literally illegal to them yeah it was so it's a lot of just this like stealing from indigenous communities from low-income communities stealing their art and saying oh no no but like I'm putting it on display like I'm telling the world about you it's yeah. fine mm -hmm. <laughs> when really it's not fine yeah I think the theme of gentrification is really important to point out because this is literally what gentrification is, <laughs> like creating a museum that's too expensive for local folks to go. Who is that being built for then? That's being built for wealthy surrounding communities. That's being built for tourists who are going to be expected mm -hmm. to pay. And gentrification occurs when outside people start building stuff that's catered to people outside of the community. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important to point out. I hadn't thought about the Mexico thing, but it is interesting that it's Museo de, de Bellas Artes mm -hmm. and that there is a Teatro de Bellas Artes in Mexico City. I also, yeah, and I also think, like, he says, we glimpse a hoop skirt and the trampled black shoes of a woman with minuscule feet. I, it made me think about, like, what we consider art and when we consider it art, because mm -hmm. I think um, a hoop skirt probably wasn't considered art when it first was made, mm -hmm. and then putting it in a museum, I guess, 
automatically gives it this status but i just we always have to question like who chose that to yeah, be there and why and it sometimes can feel a little bit voyeuristic because the working class people that maybe like actually would wear tram- trampled black shoes or who maybe actually have family members who make arrowheads and masks in a certain tradition can't go so it's like who's going to be fascinated mm-hmm. by that it's like people who for whom that's foreign yeah i mean it's a cultural appropriation too it, it i was thinking just a lot about the warache you know and a is just like that shoe that can be made out of leather a lot of things that are like traditionally very indigenous people in mexico would wear mm-hmm. and now like forever 21 is selling them <laughs> all these things are called what is it? strappy sandals oh my god and i was like bro it's a warache okay <laughs> like, what are you doing and then right. you know making profit off making this, yeah. profit off of it without paying the people who made it and <laughs> without paying the people who made it and then also just without knowing the background of it because right. I remember I know like a lot of people wearing before like wearing wearing waraches. I mean Mexico is full of colorism yeah and yeah. being people were waraches being called indios mm-hmm. very derogatory mm-hmm. and seen as low class and seen as this and seen as that but when a professor walks into a classroom wearing waraches in a flowery shirt. She's like, oh my god, she's so woke. She's so this. She's so, you know, like, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about is the unimportant Lila Parr. So this girl, <laughs> I know you like really dropped that bombshell. <laughs> what happened at the end? So this is a story about Lila Parr, who's a white woman, and she's the neighbor of a Latinx couple that lives near her, and the man inherited acres that was given to him by Lila Parr's late husband and so it seems like they have a chill relationship you know what I mean Lila Parr seems like she's not a bad white woman (laughs) (laughs) and but then (laughs) I was so mad okay so what happens like in between I forgot Mandra oh oh it's so okay yeah so he's talking about the death of his son yeah yes that's how it starts and the woman is like too sad to go into town so lila parr offers to like go into town and buy them groceries so it's like again she seems nice it seems like she's just a good neighbor and it so then it talks about how the man's wife always like going into town but i guess she kind of feels weird about the class mobility because I think because she's just kind of aware of the fact that it's been given to her and that it wasn't her own family that inherited it or, like, it wasn't them that earned it, quote-unquote. I think it's actually the opposite. Really? Yeah, I think that she was really proud of it because they talk about, like, her, like, walking tall and purposefully buying things that can't be wrapped. So that people can see, can see what she bought. Can see what she bought, but like it's but that's, other I thought that's because she had a chip on her shoulder about it, though. You know, oh, like she's like, oh, okay, because she's like, I can afford it now. <laughs> yeah, because okay. she says the man's wife drives a fairly new car. This is on page forty. The man's wife drives a fairly new car, and she knows that she's been in this town long enough for people to remember how she came into her prosperity. She has a chip on her shoulder about that, I think. Mm -hmm. And she says she knows they recognize her car as the par's second best. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. They were just talking so much about the hotel, so because his son died at the hotel. With another, yeah. So his son, the way his son was strangled, kind of sounds like by a male prostitute, okay. I think. Mm-hmm. Or he was hooking up with a guy, and the guy killed him. And like the whole town knows that his son was killed in a hotel by by another man. Mm. So they were just talking about the reputation of the hotel and how like shady this is. And he wishes he was dead on the street and not in this hotel. But then it turns out that the dad goes to the hotel. Yes. That's the plot twist at the very end. So, Lila Parr and the husband actually are apparently having an affair. Yeah. (laughs) And so the motel owner of where the son died 
had known the father because the dad and Lila Parr would go there often. I thought it was interesting how throughout the whole story he kept calling her Lila Parr. And then at the end when they talk about him cheating on his wife, they call her the white woman again. Mm. I thought that was just like an interesting choice Mm -hmm. because he's so careful about the names that he gives people. Definitely. I also noticed they talked a lot about being childless. Oh, in the story? Yeah, in the story, because they kept talking about the childless Lila Parr. Oh. And she was too pretty to be childless, and she was lonely and childless. Mm. And they kept talking about all the peach trees that she planted that didn't give any fruit. And it was like fruitless peach trees. It was very All around in the windows are signs of misfortune. Of good and bad luck. It is the nature of fields and orchards. There have been whole crop failures, tiny worms, and the young plum plums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like on page 37, it was talking about Layla Parr. She's alone and has remained childless after all of these years. He has always felt for her loneliness. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just, I think this, this story is so packed. There's a lot here. I know. I'm still trying to unpack. As you were like zigzagger, you were kind of very clear of of what the message was, I think. At least just queerness in general. Yeah. And then this queerness is here too, though. Yeah. But then there's queerness, there's adultery, there's the importance of children, there's class, there's so much. (laughs) There's color because the white woman... Because at first, when I when I read it, I was like, oh, she like sounds like an ally. Kind of made me sound yeah, like... Yeah, she seemed like okay at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> the lesson from the story is don't trust white women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I also, I also think there was like this machismo kind of a little bit of... That you first see it when they keep talking about, oh, well, she's lonely now. Her husband died, so her life is kind of over. Lila yeah. Parr is lonely. She doesn't have any children, so her life is kind of over. Mm-hmm. And then he throughout the, the story, he's like a really sweet husband. And then you realize he's like sweet. a dog. Because <laughs> he like was talking about how he feels bad for his wife. So he like gets up and like, it's like, do you want coffee? I think it just... No, the, the wife likes the two like Page 37. The man and his wife have done with little breakfast... Usually she will set up the wife mm-hmm. since had a plate of eggs, chorizo or bacon and ham, oatmeal and coffee. She'll tell him to eat fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kinda I kinda see them as your archetypal older couple who's not really in love anymore, but they still do the same routine of mm-hmm. like waking up every day and making each other breakfast, but yeah. it's like loveless. Yeah, but after this one there's another scene of breakfast. Of it was after Lila Parr went to go get them food. After like, she stocked the shelves and he got up, but she, the mom didn't want to get up because she was so sad. I forget which page it was, but the, he tried to get her to eat and he left a plate for her on the stove, but she didn't go get it. I mean, and it also, I guess, just it shows how your mind is engraved in things. And I was like, oh, he made food. <laughs> He's so good. It's like us giving a man a favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so it's on page 41. He cooks the full breakfast for both of them, leaving a plate for his wife on the stove. But she does not come into the kitchen by the time he makes his way to the shut office. Well, I I guess, I think for me, what is striking is how the man describes how his son died as vulgar. Mm -hmm. When he was cheating with a woman who was the neighbor with a woman who they knew really well with the woman who is responsible for them having wealth who's a widow yeah <laughs> right so it's like and i think he knew the husband too so i think that's also another kind of yeah, betrayal that was his, his boss yeah and i just think i just think it's very interesting that nowhere in the story does the father ever express remorse for having slept with lila part or like expressed mm-hmm. embarrassment or like just shame yeah I mean it was like this whole thing of how terrible it was that his son was found in this hotel with this really bad reputation and how just how how embarrassing it was for him which is very ironic which is the same hotel he goes to cheat on his wife at I know it's like the the apple doesn't fall far from the tree Mm -hmm. (laughs) the father and the son chose the same motel to do their dirty deeds Mm -hmm. I mean it just goes to show that the just how, how queerness is looked at. I mean, 
if how, how people always say oh it's a sin it's a sin it's in the bible like well so is adultery right and it just makes me think of like a lot of latinx fathers or just like a lot of fathers in general celebrate when their kid when their sons have like their first girlfriend you know or like if their son loses their virginity or their son's for first kiss it's like a huge proud moment for a dad but like the moment their daughter starts talking about doing all of these things like having a little boyfriend or having their first kiss like the dad you know all those like oh god so toxic prom pictures of the dad standing next to the, the prom date with a gun or something like that Jesus Christ. Yeah. No, I think heteronormative male sexual activity is celebrated, seen as normal, but because it was with another man. And it's like all heteronormative male sexual activity. Yes, yes. No matter what the context, basically. I think there's also something in the story about how Latina women aren't allowed to carry themselves with pride because, so, yeah, the, the... the woman does seem like she's a little arrogant. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, well, it seems like she's arrogant. She has a chip on her shoulder, so she doesn't like talking to people in the town. But on page 42, it says, Today the women say they haven't seen the man's wife in town. Not in the afternoons, not in the grocery store. One of the old men says that this is not surprising, that she must be humiliated by the ordeal. He reminds them of her posture, how she walks in town, or how her hands clutch at things with authority. It is because of this she knows what it is like to not have had things. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was like they're not allowing her to have that pride, and they're so excited to talk about yes. this incident that makes it so that oh, that cocky woman has been pushed off her pedestal. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a little misogynistic. It is. It's very yeah. These haughtiness. The women say that her demeanor is not different from those who have been mm-hmm. as lucky, that there comes a haughtiness when the easy life is given and not earned. And I mean, I, I mean, they don't talk about the man here, but like in this context of walking into town, but when they talk about the man, they talk about how, how, how hard he works mm-hmm. and how he's always like in the office and how he's doing all of this. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, I'm taking family around law right now, so it's kind of how the role of the man is valued versus how the role of the woman is valued in a marriage. Mm-hmm. And how the role of the woman is seen as so easy and so stay at home, like you do nothing while the man goes out and works kind of thing. And I, I also think that they, the townspeople judged her confidence as her thinking that she was better than them. So the the way she stands, the way she stands, walks, looks past, it tells how she feels she deserves more. More of what is anyone's guess. And I, I think that that, gives us insight into how unfair the town's judging of her is mm-hmm. because what does she like she feels she deserves more she feels like she deserves a loving relationship where she's not cheated on and like I, it doesn't say in the story whether or not the woman knows about the man's infidelity mm-hmm. but if she I feel like a lot of times even even if you don't know about the cheating the relationship isn't gonna is not good yeah. at the point where a person is cheating so it's like she if she feels she deserves more she feels like she deserves more from this man that like you said everybody yeah. praises because he has this office job that was given to him by Lila Parr mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting the the, the son kind of like in Zigzagger the son is also described as very masculine your oh, really? son in page 45 it says the young man lacked the stance but he seemed to be headed towards the same powerful build as, as his father mm-hmm. his hands firm when he grasped the pen to sign in the doorknob when he exited so he's like at this big guy you know a powerful build the big hand again a very masculine stereotypical guy <laughs> that is now is also queer the it's the last line then the other young man and how they stood by the door close together and tentative and then rushed inside. How did the police know that he was caught with a guy if the motel owner didn't tell the police? I think they did. I think he did. No, but so, okay, so it says the motel owner knows many people by face. He knows the town's ex-mayor, a beautician from friends from Fresno, many truckers from Oregon and Washington State. He stated to the police officer that the young man they had found dead came in alone and no, he had never seen him before. But he did not tell that he had seen a dark figure in the passenger seat of the young man's car. He allows people their dishonesties. Hmm. But earlier in the story, it did like that's everybody knew anyway, right? Yeah, he was their, arrested. Their son's body was naked and discolored; his eyes closed. And then they later arrested the kid. The one Which one? Killed, the one that killed him. Oh, really? Yeah, they said they found him and arrested him. Oh, really? Wait, when was that? 
Okay, here, on page 43, it says, mm -hmm. the second paragraph, the townspeople, the vendors, the more distant neighbors, all of them broke their silences when the town paper ran the story. It printed not only the particulars, the time of day, the needles found, the fugitive captured, but also the mildest of, of the allegations, what the interviewed police, interviewed police stressed as, quote, possible motives. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that focus of pointing out how the least controversial of all these things is that there were two men having sex with each other, but that's what the town thinks is so scandalous. Yeah. Yeah, there's this line in page 43, too. It says, he knows some of the members of the Iglesia de San Pedro, and they have conferred with him, driving out to the farmhouse and asking him to reconsider his position in the world. When they left, he was angry for being so cordial with them. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's just, again, the Catholicism of it all. A little, it, it has to be, even if just one sentence put in there, the Catholicism is a huge part. Because I think at this point, in the next communities, Catholicism is more than like a religion. I feel like it's become very cultural. It's cultural. I mean, I think that's why... Even though you weren't raised Catholic, you, you read Zigzagger and you were you already knew what they were signaling to. Mm -hmm. And like I feel like, for example, too, like a lot of people have a connection with like the Virgen de Guadalupe, even if it's not religious. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what they mean by saying that he needs to reconsider his position in the world. Like, I don't know. Are they saying that he needs to become less of a prominent person because of this scandal? Maybe. Or you know, like a lot of the times when kids mess up or something and go like it was the parents they weren't raised right mentality mm. or you should have taken your son to church or something you know something yeah. like that that's so awful Cafes are kind of are the kind of places where one of these men will step away from the rest if encouraged to do more than look. After asking if his shirt is Italian and only once worn, it takes such little work to get his story started. First, the small town in rural New York. How his parents did not love him, but his uncle did. Mm. <laughs> and then, so this this story is called Hombres, and to me, it, telling the story of queer men leaving small rural towns and going to the big city and kind of being able to find community for the first yeah. time being able to you know because i know that like new york also in the past hasn't always been the most queer friendly place but it kind of seems like they're talking about cruising here like mm -hmm. how there's these cafes where you kind of know where to go that's where the queer guys are going to yeah. be and they like, keep saying word they say these cafes are kind places right it's safe to do the, do this and it's safe to do that mm -hmm. and so it has a lot of words that point to i feel safe here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they talks about how the cafes have soft backlighting, bulbs camouflaged by plants, lowered lamps that don't create harsh shadows, urging them to flirt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I thought this was really interesting. I because so when they're talking about the rural boy from New York whose parents didn't love him but his uncle did, I just pictured a white boy because of the fact that it was rural New York. And then I think it's really interesting how. There's that contrast with the brown, the mm -hmm. quote-unquote brown boy in the cafe. And he says, like the brown boy in the cafe wearing the apron, I can't explain them. That boy will tell you about ships and crossing water, about babies and southern seas. That boy, I can tell by the way he never answers them, knows that telling stories never settles scores. He serves some chocolate cake and and strudel but doesn't explain hunger that it isn't frustration in a small town bed he pours coffee says nothing of places where uncles are the least of worries mm. I, I, I highlighted that paragraph yes I, I loved it I loved it too and because I, I just think yeah I really loved it because I, I just think it's it to me made me think about the importance of intersectionality because mm -hmm. it's like yeah you as a probably white queer person in rural New York 
face difficult shit. Your, your parents did not love you. That's fucked up. At the same time, there's queer migrants who, mm-hmm. yes, experience that. And also all the traumas of migrating and being an immigrant in the U.S. And coming from, a, it's like, not only do their parents not accept their queerness, but also, like, their life is in danger. Like, they could yeah. die from war or whatever. And I think... I think anybody that doesn't understand privilege and the conversation of privilege needs to read this story. Yes. Because I really loved how he's, how in, in that last paragraph it says he knows that telling stories doesn't settle scores. Mm-hmm. So it's not, no, I had more, you know, you have white privilege, so my life is rougher than yours. Mm-hmm. Or everyone has their struggles. And you honestly, you, you have to understand your own struggle. But you also have to understand your privilege. Yeah. You have white privilege, even if you're queer. Mm-hmm. There's some people... Huge issue. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It reminded me of, po- of uh, Pose. There's a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen like two of them. There's an episode of Pose where it talks about... So, like, the show Pose set in the 80s when it talks about the friction that there was between trans women of color and white queer men Mm -hmm. and how like white queer men saw trans women of color as like below them dirty and like these terrible things and it it just kind of reminded me of there's problematic shit that happens in every community. Yeah, so queer community included. Yeah, every single community has problematic stuff that, that goes on and it's also the people in the background. It made me think a lot of migrants don't openly say like yes. a migrant because mm-hmm. if you say hey I'm undocumented <laughs> that's a different kind of coming out mm-hmm. than saying hey I'm queer when you're undocumented and queer right? and when you're undocumented and queer that's a that's kind of it's like, like a double coming out yeah it's a double coming out have you read out Jose Vargas I follow him on Twitter. I read it. He was um, I, uh, Yeah, like he. I heard him speak once, and he was saying that he had two coming outs in life when he mm-hmm. came out as queer, when he came out as undocumented. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, his story is very much of these two coming outs. And if if you do come out, or if you don't come out, because the the waiter is choosing not to, mm-hmm. at least not to the the men in the story. I really appreciate also how I think from the perspective of the queer white men, this boy who works at the cafe or this man who works at the cafe, like really is kind of in the background. And it made me think a lot about domestic workers and how they're always in the background. A lot of times wealthy people, one of the ways in which they dehumanize the domestic workers that work for them is just by not even acknowledging their existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like I've seen like countless scenes in movies and reality tea <laughs> where like the Latina woman who's the nanny or the maid comes in and like brings the tea and sets it down and leaves yeah. and just like nobody ever even acknowledges that she's there mm-hmm. and I felt a similar kind of dynamic with this this boy who's serving them the cafe and like from the queer white men perspective it's like they're like kikiing and talking about like the old times where it was rough and not recognizing, oh, there's a person who has also experienced queer violence mm-hmm. and a whole other kind of violence. But we have no idea because we're not even going to bother to ask or to try yeah. to know this person and I mean, or acknowledge them. And I think how a lot of the times it, it can become this race to the bottom of, no, yeah. I suffered more than you did. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it, this story very clearly alludes to sexual assault oh bad part and that's why he says we're the uncles are the least of your worries oh that's kind of <laughs> and this is like the fashionable with like the fancy italian, the fancy italian yeah. shirts and they're in cafes in new york yeah eating strudel but then there's also that other queer men in there that the the that's the not waiter. visible mm-hmm. yeah and i, I just i'm just i think thinking about the many queer asylum seekers that I've worked with and like how for the rural the the white boys from rural New York their worst fear is waking up again pre-dawn on a sleepy farm to the kind of cold they don't remember Mm -hmm. the kind that makes them lightheaded and the story expresses that the white men also go through rejection from their families but I just I yeah I just I had to think about the queer time seekers that I've met who fear violence from their family, violence from the police, who fear violence from gangs, on top of just like the general instability of the country that they live in. Yeah, I, I thought it was really, this was just a really important story that I think shows the importance of in- intersectionality. It doesn't say it, it doesn't yeah. tell you it, it just shows you it. 
Well, and I think this whole, I mean, all the stories do because yeah, it's talking about class, queerness, color, migration, migration, working class people, city, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just all like how everything is affected by each other. And the thing is, I, th- I think it's important. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he definitely does draw this picture of a California that people don't see so it's, mm-hmm. it, I think it's also a lot about disability mm-hmm. of like what we see what we choose to ignore I think yeah. we choose to ignore macho queer men mm-hmm. because that's not what fits into the perfect picture that we have of femininity is this and masculinity is this which I think I think he he, he really captures the things we choose to ignore mm-hmm. and then like puts it in our face mm-hmm. sexual assault of young queer men mm-hmm. like that's a big thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know it's, been, it's such a hard topic to talk about but sexual assault by family members of young children mm-hmm. yeah no I, I think that I, I think I appreciate his subtlety because I think he there's a lot here and the stories are so short that it's just so it, that's why I kind of compared it to a poem because mm-hmm. it's like two pages of, and there's so much there and you just like reread it to really get it and every time you read it you find something else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I definitely recommend it for anyone who hasn't read it yet and there, we didn't read all of the stories actually mm-hmm. so recommend reading the full thing is there anything else you want to tell that you feel like we need to talk about I mean I think we talked about a lot but yeah these are like every time you read it you find something else that you missed the last time Mm -hmm. and I do appreciate how he's so open about the characters and like I do feel like you can kind of insert yourself in the characters the boy the mom Mm -hmm. the dad Mm -hmm. yeah it was a great book yeah all right bye y'all